Good morning, church. We are going to enter into this Old Testament book of Malachi this morning. Uh, series title is Returning to God. We're going to see a lot of calls to repentance in these four chapters. Uh, but Malachi sets this up really as uh, a discussion between God and his people. We're going to see a lot of question and answer going on uh, in this book as basically we're going to we're going to be seeing uh, about a half dozen distinct disputes or questions that occur between God and his people. And I think every one of these is so relevant for the times that we're living in right now. Malachi originally prophesied toward the end of the 5th century B.C. He is the last of the Old Testament books and he was the last of the Old Testament prophets after this book there's about a 400 year period of silence before we see john the baptist and jesus arriving on the scene in the gospel of matthew but uh so somewhere around the year 420 bc malachi comes and brings this prophecy to the people of israel who had not too long before that maybe a hundred years or so before that they had returned from their captivity in babylon those were in the days of the prophets haggai and zechariah who called the people to begin to rebuild jerusalem the, the city that had been destroyed by nebuchadnezzar and his armies they were calling the people to rebuild the city to rebuild the temple and then god led the man nehemiah to come along and to rebuild the walls around the city and and so by the time malachi arrives on the scene jerusalem is basically rebuilt the worship at the temple had been restored and and god's people though they weren't at their highest by any means were doing a whole lot better than they had been in previous days and yet malachi comes to call god's people back to a place of greater faithfulness toward him they had already grown apathetic and lazy in their worship of God, and he calls them to repent. We're going to see the first of these two disputes between God and his people in this first chapter. We'll see another one next week in chapter 2, and we'll see the final three disputes in chapter 3 as we get into that a couple of weeks from now. But these first two disputes uh, relate to what I've entitled the message this morning. Our our staff enjoyed this particular title uh, that I came up with. Hopefully it'll make sense by the time we finish this morning. But I've entitled today's message, Loyal Love and Lousy Lambs. And this relates to these first two disputes that are voiced between God and his people. You're going to see this refrain uh, this this pattern of refrain happening in, in this book of malachi that that god will say something and then the people will say that you'll see these words but you say and the people will say something and then god will give the final word so god will speak and the people will respond and then god will give the final word we're going to see that multiple times in this book the first two relating to loyal love and lousy lambs so here's our key truth for the morning Malachi is drawing us in to the first of these six disputes that still exist today between God and his redeemed people. 
The kinds of questions that Malachi is drawing out from the 5th century B.C. are still very, very relevant and crucial questions for us to wrestle with in the modern day. So let's look at the first of these disputes. The first dispute that Malachi brings to the table in the first five verses concerns divine love. Malachi, this one whose name means my messenger, begins in this way. I have loved you, says the Lord. In fact, the the tense of that statement really means I have always loved you. He's speaking of the eternal love of God for his people that had really no beginning and will have no end. It's the steadfast love, the covenant love of God for his people that he is speaking about here. It's the same kind of love that God showed his people through the book of Deuteronomy. And as he speaks about this love, he he wants them to understand the basis for his love. And we need to understand this as well. What is the basis of God's love for us? Does he love us because of some attribute within us? Or is there some other reason for his love? Deuteronomy chapter 7. In the last words of Moses, Moses records this message from the Lord. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples, out of all the nations who are on the face of the earth. Why is he chosen in this way? Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. That idea of fewest there, you are the weakest, you are the easiest to overlook, basically, of all the nations. And yet the Lord chose you. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so why has God set his love upon us? This is one of the first of many indicators in the scripture that would remind us that he has not set his love upon us because of anything in us. In fact, there would have been every reason for him to have rejected us. There was nothing in us that merited this steadfast, covenant, eternal love of Almighty God. In fact, the Bible indicates very clearly He loved us before we could have even done anything deserving of His love. His love is tied intimately to His grace, His unmerited favor toward us. But their first dispute is this. God says, I've always loved you. And the people respond and say, how have you loved us? Their first question relates to God's very love for them. They question his love even to the point of denying his love. As they're looking around at the landscape, they say, we don't see any evidence of your love for us. How have you loved us, God? 
And so God proceeds to give them three signs of his loyal love toward them. Three signs of the Lord's loyal covenant love for us are given in these next three verses. The first of these relates to the Lord's declaration of his love. The fact that he has spoken and said, I have always loved you. The first sign of the Lord's love is the Lord's word. Because he has said that he loved us, that itself serves as a sign, as a proof of God's love for us. Because God is always faithful to his word. Now we may speak words of love to one another and then deny those words by our actions. But God is always perfectly faithful to his word there is no hypocrisy in him he will always do exactly what he has said he will do and his covenant love is displayed in his actions toward us well what kind of actions toward us we'll get that to that in just a moment but first let's look at jeremiah 31 prophet jeremiah just prior to their being sent off to babylon in exile the lord declares at that time i will be the god of all the clans of israel and they shall be my people thus says the lord the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when israel sought for rest the lord appeared to him from far away and then these this statement i have loved you with an everlasting love Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Notice the connection there. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have acted in faithfulness toward you. So Jeremiah is prophesying leading up to the Babylonian exile, to the destruction of Jerusalem and the people being carried off to Babylon where they would remain for 70 years. But even before that event, God was promising them their return. God was promising them their restoration. God was promising them the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and and the the return of the proper worship of Almighty God. God was making those promises before he ever sent them away in exile. This is his covenant love demonstrated in his covenant faithfulness. Based upon his declaration, his word alone. But God goes on to give further proof in verse 3. Not only has he given a sign of his loyal love and his declaration of his love for his people, in, in his steadfast word and his truthfulness, his faithfulness to his own word, but he has also given the sign of his decision in relation to his people. Now there's some hard things here. When he says... They say, how have you loved us? And God's response is, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, how did we get here? How have you loved us? And God answers that question with a question. By the way, this is what Jesus often did. When people came to Jesus with questions, you notice how many times Jesus answered questions with questions. That wasn't to be annoying, by the way. 
sometimes my kids will do that to me and it's really annoying. That was not to be annoying in this instance. He's seeking to teach them something. How have you loved us, God? And God's response is, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Okay, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we have to go back to the book of Genesis, don't we? And we have to see these two twin sons of Isaac brought into the world by the hand of God. Esau, the older, it says that Jacob came out second, clinging to the heel of his brother. And so they named him Jacob, which means a heel or also means a deceiver. He was given the name of a deceiver even from his birth. And that name was played out in his life. As we see the wreckage that that Jacob often wrought because of his deception. And yet, the Lord said, I set my love upon him. Now here's hope for us, folks. If God could set his covenant love upon that old deceiver, Jacob. If he could look beyond Esau, who was the firstborn, therefore that made him worthy of the covenant love. He was the the stronger that made him worthy of the covenant love. There were many things to be commendable about Esau. He was a hunter who sought to provide uh, for his family. There were many things, there were many other things about Esau we could mention as well, but there were many commendable things. If you said Esau and Jacob side by side, If we had them here before us this morning and we were to ask the question, which of these seems to be from our uh, from our appearances were most worthy of God's covenant love? We would choose Esau every time. But God chose Jacob. And why does God choose Jacob? Because his act of setting his love upon us has absolutely nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with our merits. Nothing to do with our strength or our qualities. It is unmerited favor that God shows. And I know we've heard this before, but we need to be reminded of it time and time again. Because we fall back into this mentality that we begin to think that there's something in us that is deserving of the love of God. And it's false. There's nothing in us that's deserving of the love of God. And yet he has chosen to set his love upon us. Robbie Gallaty, in trying to help us understand this, this phrase, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated, he, he, he helps us in this way. He says, the point is not that God loved Jacob more than Esau, but that he desired to make a covenant with Jacob instead of Esau. This is covenant language here. God's electing love is not based on our performance or our position or our power, but it's based on his prerogative. Election is a biblical expression of God's love for us in Christ. It's meant to humble us. Now I know how we wrestle with the doctrine of election. Let me say two things about it this morning. First of all, you have to do something with the doctrine of election because it's in the scriptures. You cannot ignore the doctrine of election and God's choosing because it's in the scriptures. But I would also want to say this to us. Every time it's in the scriptures, 
Don't miss this. Every time the doctrine of election is talked about in the scriptures, it is always intimately tied to the love of God. So whatever the election of God means, whatever his choice means, it is tied directly to his love for us. So in Ephesians chapter 1, when it says he predestined us, it says he predestined us in his love. Don't miss that. Because we can get all off track with this thing and get all kinds of thoughts that have nothing to do with the love of God. We can even paint an ill picture of God when we start talking about election. Whatever it is, it's biblical. And whatever it is, it's done in love. That's why it ought to interest us. That's why we ought to seek to understand these things, even though to a large degree there's a mystery here that we can't fully comprehend. So once again, how have I loved you? Is not Esau Jacob's brother. The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Paul picks up this language in Romans chapter 9, again talking about God's electing love. But again, it's not so much a matter of love and hate as it is a matter of covenant. And God choosing to enter into a covenant relationship with Jacob and his descendants in a way that he did not enter into a covenant relationship with Esau and his descendants. Both of them came from the same parental family they both of them came from the same source if you will they were very different as brothers and esau would have been the one we would have thought would have been more deserving and yet god chose jacob a reminder that it's all about his grace and then he gives a third sign not only his declaration of his love not only his decision related to his love but his dedication to that decision made in his love. But he follows through with it to the end so that it was not just Jacob and Esau, but we continue to see played out in the Old Testament scriptures that division that occurred there where God set his love upon Jacob rather than Esau, and we continue to see that played out. Now notice what he's saying here about Edom. Those are the descendants of Esau, by the way, that are known as Edom. Uh, and, and what he says about them is, is they're saying, uh, we are shattered, but we will rebuild. That's what Edom was saying. They had been destroyed by a greater army as well. Even in the days of Malachi, there had been a war in which they had been caught up and they had been destroyed, much as Israel had been a generation before by the Babylonians. And, he, and they're saying, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild. But what does God say? No, you won't. You may rebuild, but it'll be torn down. And we look at history and we see this is exactly what happened. Once Edom and the descendants of Esau were destroyed, once their nation was devastated, they never came back. They were scattered among the nations, never to be heard from again. There was no regathering. There was no rebuilding. They sought a number of times to do so, but it never happened. God followed through with his covenant love. And that meant it was demonstrated in history. And so God says, your own eyes shall see this. 
And your response will be, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What's he getting at here? He's helping us to be reminded that God's great love would not be confined to Israel. That he chose Israel as the recipients of his covenant love, but ultimately, even going back to the beginning of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the covenant love was never meant to end at the borders of Israel. They were simply meant to be a conduit of God's love and grace to all the nations. Now they failed horribly at that. As we see in the Old Testament, why did they go through the Babylonian captivity? Because they failed horribly at keeping the covenant that God had entered into with them. And yet God continued faithful even though they were faithless. But here God's reminding them, hey, think back to what I said to Abraham. I'm going to bless you, but why am I going to bless you? I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That all the nations will see in you the weakest, smallest, little old nation, uh, this little old nothing of a nation, that they will see in Israel the display of my covenant love. And that through you, all the nations might come to know me. I think we still question the love of God today. In so many ways. We look around at the landscape and we see things are not what they were two years ago. And many would long for a return to normalcy as we thought we knew it. And we can be quick to begin to question the love of God. How can God love us in the midst of the political landscape that we're seeing right now? How can God love us in the midst of a continuing pandemic that we're living in and we don't seem to see an end to that? How can God love us when our economy is such a wreck? How can God love us? We could just go on and fill in the blanks with so many things as the people of Israel were doing here right in the Malachi chapter 1. But ultimately, as we're asking God, how have you loved us? God answers in this way. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God pointed his Old Testament people back to the relationship between Jacob and Esau. He said, see how I loved you? I chose you by my grace. Nothing in you that merited that choice, but I set my love upon you because I desired to do so. In the same way, God says to us as New Testament people, you want to see how I love you? Look to the cross where I crushed my son so that you could be redeemed. See my covenant love for you. The same God who chose Jacob chose to crush Jesus to redeem a people for himself. And in this we rejoice. So this first dispute concerning divine love. How has God loved us? But then we see a second dispute beginning in verse 6. And really it carries on into the first half of chapter 2 that we'll look at next week. But the second dispute concerns defiled lambs. 
so interesting here that as the people were asking, how have you loved us? God responds to them and says, but let me show you how you've loved me. And your love toward me has been really poor. You've been questioning my love for you. Now let me question your love for me for a moment. And he begins to talk to them about their demonstration of love, which occurred through their offerings. God had given them instructions about the rightful kinds of offerings that should be brought in worship to him all the way back in the first five books of the Bible, particularly in the book of Leviticus. He is again and again reminding them of the kind of offerings that he will receive as acceptable in their worship. Leviticus chapter 22, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when anyone of the house of Israel or the the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. Notice those words without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And so then we come to Malachi chapter 1. Again, the worship of the temple has been reinvigorated. There is a new temple. They are they're beginning to offer those sacrifices again but the people had become lazy in their worship and so he says a son honors his father and a servant his master this is verse six if then i'm a father where's my honor if i am a servant if i'm a master where is my fear says the lord of hosts to you O priests who despise my name and here's another but you say statement But you say, how have we despised your name? We're worshiping you. We're doing what you've told us to do. How have we despised your name? We're honoring your name every time we come together and make these sacrifices. How have we despised your name? The Lord says, verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, there's another one back to back. How have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? And then he proceeds to describe to them the kinds of offerings that they were bringing. Blemished offerings of the least of their flocks. The blind and the lame and the sickly and the weak. They were not bringing their best before the Lord. They were bringing their worst. And proclaiming to worship God rightly. They were what I would say leveraging lousy lambs. They were bringing an offering that was unacceptable in light of all that God had done for them. And the tendency is church that we would do the same. That we would come before this holy and righteous God of steadfast covenant love. And we would bring before him an offering that is not fitting for who he is and for what he has done for us. And so I want you to see three signs of those leveraging lousy lambs. 
How might we be guilty of the very thing that God's people were doing here in Malachi chapter 1 as they were bringing subpar offerings before God? We know we don't bring lambs anymore. Praise be to God. The Lamb of God has been slain and we no longer bring these kinds of sacrifices. So what do we bring before God? If it's not going to be a judgment of the quality of the lambs we bring, then what are we bringing before God that needs to have some consideration? You see, as the New Testament people of God, we come bringing our hearts before Him. We come bringing before Him all of who we are as those living sacrifices that Romans 12.2 encourages us to be. But the problem is, just like these Old Testament people who were seeking to leverage lousy lambs that they might obtain the favor of God through these worthless sacrifices, we can often come to God half-hearted. We can often come to God and say all the right words, but inside There's a different reality. I want to speak about three of those this morning that I think relate to some of what uh, Malachi lays out in the next few verses. First of all, we can come bringing an apathetic heart before God. Look at verse 13. So descriptive of what we can often engage in. Start in verse 12, you profane it, profane the altar when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. And there's another, but you say statement. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Then you bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or is sick, and you bring that as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. What a weariness this is. God, aren't you making too much out of this? What's the big deal? What's the big deal if I just come in kind of half-heartedly bringing, I know it's not my best, but it's something, right? Isn't that going to be acceptable? We can come in with an apathetic heart that is not solely devoted to the Lord, but instead is double-minded. We're half in, half out. And we can find ourselves in this place very, very often. But the issue at hand is this. We are not bringing our best before God. We're holding out on Him. And and the Lord said to them, they're, they're saying, but you say, what a weariness this is. What a weariness to have to get up on Sunday morning and come to church What a weariness to to have to come before Him in spirit and in truth as He desires us to come. What a weariness to have to lay bare our whole heart before Him. Can I not just give Him a, a little bit of time on Sunday morning and call it good? And yet the Lord wants and deserves all of us. The whole of who we are. He's deserving of it. And yet so often we come apathetically. But if it's not the apathetic heart, we also can have the tendency to bring before God the bitter heart. So maybe it's not just bringing part of ourselves before the Lord, a a subpar offering in that way. 
But maybe it's what James talks about when he says, with the same mouth, from the same mouth come praise and cursing. You come in and you sing your songs to God, but there's bitterness in your heart toward one of your brothers or sisters. There's unresolved conflict. There's, there's unforgiveness that's lingering in the room and you act like it's okay. But James says, my brothers, this should not be. This should not be. How can you say you love God and yet are acting in hatred toward your brother or sister? You can't do it. You can't do that. This will not be an acceptable offering. And yet we come so often with bitter hearts. And the scriptures encourage us in this way. Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Get rid of it is the Greek idea there. Along with all malice. And be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. So how did God in Christ forgive you? Completely. Totally. Not sticking a little bit of the bitterness in his back pocket for the next time you screwed up. But he has forgiven us thoroughly. And that is not only for the benefit of the one being forgiven... But it's for the benefit of the one doing the forgiving. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And we forgive because it allows us then to come before God without the bitterness that hinders our worship. Malachi 12, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, similar idea. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. You see, bitterness and unforgiveness is like weeds in your garden. If they are not plucked out down to the roots, they will choke out that which is good. We need to see this. So this temptation that we would have to come in to worship, to come bringing a sacrifice of praise to Almighty God, but in our hearts harboring anger and unforgiveness and bitterness toward another, what we are doing is we are bringing lousy lambs before God. We are bringing an unfit offering before God. And we need to see it. And we need to repent. But not just the apathetic heart and the bitter heart. We also are tempted toward the cheating heart. Look at verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet he sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. It's not a matter of us not having what God requires it's a matter of us not bringing what God requires so notice here that the profession and the practice don't line up he has the lamb without blemish 
And he vows it to the Lord. He says, this is the lamb that I'm going to bring before God in worship this week. But when it comes time to do so, he brings something lesser. This is the cheating heart. This is the hypocritical heart. The heart in which the profession and the practice do not line up. This is the heart of one who comes in to worship God and sings all the songs and reads all the scriptures and says all of the right things, but then leaves this place and goes out and lives like the world the rest of the week and then comes back the next week bringing another lousy lamb, thinking that God will be satisfied with less than our best. What's really at issue here? What's really at issue here? Is that God is deserving of our best. God is not deserving of our apathy or our bitterness or our cheating hearts. God is not deserving of our duplicity or our deceitfulness. And by the way, He is not deceived. God will not be mocked. God knows our hearts. The biggest problem for us is we don't. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We need God to reveal to us that which is hindering our worship of Him. And we need that because of what He says at the very end here. Because of who God is. He says, For I am a great King, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He's showing us from the end, the end from the beginning. He's saying this is what is going to happen in that eternal state that God's great name will be proclaimed among the nations. This is what calls us to mission. This is what calls us to engaging in the great commission that he has given us. But it's a reminder of what's going to take place. Not what might happen, but what will happen because God has spoken it. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that he has had with his people. Of which we are called to be engaged. God's great name will be proclaimed among the nations. That proclamation was sounded forth by John the Baptist. In John chapter 1. It says of John that the next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, behold, take notice, folks, something you need to see here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the proclamation that changes everything. So as we are coming before God offering lousy lambs, God steps in to the picture and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The reality is all we have to offer before a holy God is lousy in light of our sinfulness. So God has to step in and show us what real worship looks like. And real worship looks like the cross. Real love looks like a crucified Savior. And He calls us not just to see it, but to walk in it. Reminding ourselves of who we were and who He is. You see, we were blind and blemished by our sins. 
And yet he graciously brought us back by his blood. You see, we were sick and stained by our sins. And yet he saved us by his singular sacrifice. You see, church, we were lame and languishing in our sins. And yet he leveraged his life for ours. We were defiled and dead in our sins. Go read Ephesians 1 and 2. We were defiled and dead in our sins. And yet he delivered us through his death. At the end of the day, here's what we need to see, church. We were the polluted sacrifice. We were the polluted sacrifice. But Christ was the pure offering that paid our pardon. See, when we get that right, when we get that right, then we can come before this holy God and bring a sacrifice of praise that's fitting for him. Then we'll recognize why our apathy is such an abomination. Because he was not apathetic toward us. Then we will recognize why our bitterness is such a problem. In light of the forgiveness that he came and extended toward us. Then we will recognize why our cheating hearts are such an issue. Because he has not been double minded toward us. He has come pursuing us in his covenant love. He has come drawing us to himself in his grace. And he is deserving of our worship. And Malachi would teach us how to worship rightly. Let's bow before him in prayer this morning. Father, as we come toward the end of our service this morning, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves in these two disputes. Father, help us to see how we ourselves have questioned your love for us. As we have looked at our circumstances rather than looking to our Savior. As we have looked toward the things that don't seem to be going right for us. And and neglected to look upon your steadfast love and grace that you have proved at the cross. And Father, help us to see those places in our lives where we have been leveraging lousy lambs. We have been bringing an unfit, polluted sacrifice. We have been apathetic toward you. We have been bitter toward one another. We have come before you not with a steadfast heart, but with a a duplicitous heart, a cheating heart. And we're in need of your forgiveness and your grace. Father, as we prepare to sing of the depths of your love this morning, may we consider how you have loved us. You have loved us perfectly. You have loved us passionately. You have loved us eternally. 
your love never fails. And may your love spur us on to love for you and love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.